Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains stories about attacks on LGBTQ plus people and biphobia. Logbook entry, 2nd July 1985. A very irate woman has just phoned to say that she's seen a big flash convertible parked in a street in the East End with a windscreen sticker which says, A pussy a day keeps AIDS away. Can she do anything about it, apart from A, complaining to the police and risking being ridiculed, which she was willing to do, or B, giving some local kid a few bob to take care of it? I could think of nothing. Car is green in colour. Please look out for it. And then there's a note underneath from me. Lipstick on the windscreen works wonders and is by far the best use for the stuff. And someone else put underneath, no imagination, Lisa. I bet that was a man. <laughs> this is a logbook entry from the 21st of July, 1988. Beware. a reports a Nottingham Special Clinic advised him to tell his employer he was HIV positive. He is now sacked and moreover homeless as the info was passed on. What can I say? Ah! <laughs> wow. I just love that note from Lisa. Lipstick on the windscreen works wonders. I mean, fair point, but really that blatant, offensive language. A pussy a day keeps AIDS away. That, I can't even, I can't believe that even existed as a stick. I think it's disgusting. Yeah. And it's not even true. It's a bit performative, I think, isn't it? It's like, you know, because it's a windscreen sticker. Like, woo, I'm a straight lad and this is this is my outlook on the world and it's just like really aggressive and stupid and patriarchal and horrible. Yeah, it's to- it's totally inflammatory and actually I think you can probably draw parallels to a lot of things that people say at the moment, um, not necessarily on their windscreen, more on social media. But then I guess if you look at that second logbook entry, I mean, someone not only being advised to tell their employer, but then the employer firing them, it just it just shows you how much was at risk during this time, I think. All all at risk because of the lack of education, understanding, that stigma bubbling away. There's a really hostile atmosphere going on at this time. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith. And I'm Tash Walker. In this season, we're reading through the notes made by the volunteers who took calls between 1983 and 1991. This is episode six, Right On Sister. And we're gonna be talking about the atmosphere. As you'll hear in the logbook entries in this episode, the air is really sizzling with tension and hostility towards the LGBTQ plus communities. We saw a lot of that in season one. But now, as we move into the 80s and early 90s, we see that intolerance remain and indeed increase with the backlash, misunderstanding and 
political oppression triggered by HIV and AIDS. And the voices that you'll hear in this episode come from people who didn't conform to what their religion or government expected of them and the switchboard volunteers who couldn't even get the phones fixed because engineers were scared of catching AIDS. And now for some more logbook entries, which shows that intolerance, as we know, is always there bubbling away under the surface and people used HIV and AIDS just to simply give it more legitimacy. This is a logbook entry from December the 1st, 1985, 2342. A West London caller phoned of an STD problem. He had visited Prade Street for treatment where the nurses were hostile and were bandering on about HTLV3 and the doctor told him to go back to Africa. He was obviously very distraught as he is a dancer and relies on his fitness for his income. This problem has been going on for one and a half months and free visits to various clinics. Does anyone know of any other incidences of this kind of racial abuse at this or any other STD clinic? Because of course that, that entry just makes me feel, it just brings it all rushing back because that was the other thing. We'd, I'd, I'd almost forgotten that bit about people being using AIDS as a, uh, a catalyst for racism, or rather, again, another excuse for their racism, homophobia, racism, any any group that they could um, just use, any, any group that they could weaponize. You're talking about a a time where um, you know one of the best jokes, and I think it was even on television. What does gay stand for? Got H yet? Mm. You know, that's that's the general level of stuff that we were having to deal with. Well, I think to a certain extent, if you are a an out gay man, right, then I took the Quentin Crisp approach. You know, pull one's collar up very high, right. Do not look left. Do not look right. Do not invite glances from strangers. Keep firmly of where you're going from point A to point B, uh, and you might get there in safety. And I think for a lot of us, that is actually what we were doing. Miriam Stockard had booked to come in with a film crew to film in Gay Switchboard, as we were at that point, I think, still. And the film crew literally got halfway up the stairs and realised that they were coming to Gay Switchboard, which was full of gay men, and they dropped their equipment and left and wouldn't come back into the building. Uh, and my memory, this may be embroidering, but actually my memory is that we held on to the equipment as ransom until they apologised. That piece of advice from Julian about walking down the street with your like head held high and your and your collar up and just looking at where you're going is um is really powerful on the one hand, but it's really, really chilling as well that you have to be like that. And I think it's something that everyone who's a little bit different in one way or another can probably empathize with. Trying to be confident to protect themselves and worrying about people who might judge you, or in this case, worry as people did in the street in the 80s, that they might just catch AIDS from you just by walking past you in the street. And obviously we saw that happen in that story that Lisa talked about as well with the TV crew that didn't even want to come into the switchboard building. Yeah, I know. As Lisa said, it was brought right to switchboard's door. No matter how hard 
people try to avoid the judgment it's right there <laughs> yeah. um but of course they went no further than that front door um but you know switchboard was affected by this discrimination um in one of the most fundamental ways that any helpline could be impacted it meant at times that the volunteers couldn't even do the basic operation of being able to answer the phones. Logbook entry, 1st of March 1985, 7328 is driving me mad. I can't hear what the calls are saying and they can't hear me. We can both hear it's the fucking cross lines and ringing tones. Who wants to join me in nuking BT? Logbook entry, 28th of May 1987. 3am. The phone system is completely kaput. Just spoke to a guy who works for communications company. He said he had all five of our lines ringing before it answered. Nothing rang this end. Seems all five must be ringing before anyone can get through. He said the only solution is to keep picking up the phone every 10 seconds to see if anyone was on the line. Sod that. 3.30am. Still completely dead. Lost count of the number of times I've tried it. 5.36 a.m. Still dead as a dodo. I like the tone of these logbook entries. And in fact, actually, you and I, Tash, have read like lots of logbook <laughs> entries. so many. We had to really, really cut down the logbook entries <laughs> that we could <laughs> use um, in this episode because there were hundreds of volunteers writing really, really angry notes saying like, we can't even do the work. We can't even answer the phones. Uh, it's a complete fiasco. Yeah, if there's any phone engineers out there interested in the history of helplines, then <laughs> the logbooks are where you can find uh, the each and every single one breaking down one by one. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's that fundamental thing of, ultimately what switchboard was set up to do what it's there for what the volunteers are there that's to pick up the phones that's to answer the phones that's to speak to people um and, and provide that safe space that that listening ear and the caller is calling to speak to someone from switchboard right which um in one very basic way didn't even happen when these phone lines were confused because there was one logbook entry that we read from a man from Surrey who phoned Switchboard to say he's received around 20 calls that were meant for Switchboard. And he was very sort of kind yeah, and nice uh, confused about this and just phoned Switchboard to say, like, look, I think you have a problem because <laughs> I keep getting these calls. <laughs> it's so funny. It's mad. Obviously, it leads you to wonder what was going on with fixing them. And I and I remember the first time I heard this story, this sort of hearsay story um, at Bishopsgate Institute when I was talking to some previous volunteers from the 70s and 80s of how people, the engineers, refused to come out and fix the phones at Switchboard for fear of contracting HIV, then AIDS. Uh, and I was so shocked. I just thought, oh, I guess this, you know, this is something that's rolled on throughout the years and it's added. Oh, like snowballs. Yeah, like totally. Rumor. But then the more people I spoke to, uh, the more I heard the same story told over and over again. And my shock and disbelief just moved to just real, that's just sadness. And I just, I still can't believe what that must have felt like. I mean, some of the problems we had around the fact that we were at the centre of the early work on AIDS actually rebounded on our ability to to do things. I mean, we we were part of the King's Cross British Telecom switchboard, and it was the oldest and most rickety one in the country by then. It was, you know, they were slowly replacing all their equipment, and we were right at the tail end of being replaced. And of course, the 
completely insane influx of calls that we got after the leaflet went out and after AIDS started to be a big issue caused all sorts of breakdowns on the phone lines. And you will see throughout the logbooks comments like um, 7325 is working, but the ringer isn't working. Look out for the flashing light. Uh, you will see X7326 is putting calls through even when it's off the hook. So don't leave it so that people can hear what's going on, but you're not answering it. Use it first. All kinds of strategies that we use to try and keep the phones in work. But we had real trouble with BT engineers. Luckily, one of our volunteers, Julian, was working for BT by the mid-80s. And he would actually even ring up the chief exec of BT and have a go about the fact that people were not repairing our lines. But there, there did appear, I mean, A, BT engineers would not come into switchboard because they thought they'd get AIDS there. But also, they literally were afraid that they would get AIDS by working on the phone lines outside of our building, uh, which was so ridiculous it wasn't true. But, you know, this was fed back to us. A, a combination of homophobia and AIDS phobia meant that a large chunk of the 80s is full of memories of us struggling to make the phone system work. And it got worse after the phone um, phone number was put out on the leaflet because the government's apology to us for doing that without telling us, we found out luckily before it actually went out, but only just, um, their apology was to pay for a fancy new phone system, which actually broke down more often than the old one and contained loads of technology, which we actually found harder to use. And we did lose some volunteers over the fact that they literally were having nervous breakdowns trying to answer the phones well one of the th fears that we had with you know, our telephone service which was being totally overloaded was bt engineers would not come in the building they thought that they might be able to you know pick it off by walking in to switchboard's premises working on the lines even that we were homosexuals so of course you know we would be molesting them and doing things to them that would give them hiv the crazy thing was about this whole thing is that, is that if engineers came to the building, they only needed to come in to see that there was nothing wrong at our end. And we kept on telling them, several of us were for British Telecom. There is nothing wrong. It is something wrong with the lines at your end. It is something wrong with the, two, the 400 yards away 837 exchange. Oh, we don't know about that. No, we're not touching that. It was almost as though they couldn't go into their own switch rooms, um, which were 500 yards away from, from Switchboard, top end of Pentonville Road, and uh, that somehow they might get contaminated or, or, or pick up HIV from actually working on our equipment. That is how both the twin fears of homosexuality and HIV came together and created a, you know, total and mass panic. And also, I mean, you know, if they were being nice to these homosexuals and nice engineers to these homosexuals, maybe their mates at the telephone exchange might think, oh, he's one as well. That story of the phones shows about the discrimination um, and the intolerance and that sort of sizzling hostile atmosphere that we talked about at the beginning on the outside world coming into switchboard or not, you know, in the case of engineers not coming into switchboard. Um, Tash, was there ever any discrimination inside switchboard? We're all capable of intolerance and discrimination. And there was certainly a lot of that happening within switchboard. One specific example was around bisexuality. As the 80s went on, 
there became more and more of a disconnect between how we treated bisexuality on the phones and how we treated it in switchboard. Um, because we were always sympathetic and supportive to people on the phones. We didn't try and say, you must be gay, or I hope most of us didn't, to people when they were describing um, bisexual lifestyles. We supported people where they were. But on switchboard, bisexual identity had never been acceptable. We had to define as lesbian or gay. But bisexual behaviour within that definition, being lesbian or gay, became more and more verboten as the 80s went on. And I can remember in my very early days at Switchboard, a lovely volunteer called Bob, who was also a part-time porn actor, talking cheerfully about the straight porn he'd been making at the weekend and, you know, chatting away to me perfectly happily about this. And nobody turned a hair. By the end of this period, we were actively persecuting anybody on Switchboard who talked about bisexual behaviour, culminating... I think towards, I can't remember when, but I think it may be towards the end of this period, slightly after the end of when you're talking about, with a hysterical, in retrospect, um, special general meeting where I and a male volunteer were pretty much put on trial because we'd refused to lie about the fact that we'd had sex. Uh, And neither of us was redefining our sexuality. But there was an attempt, I think it was mainly an attempt by people who would quite like to chuck us off switchboard to make us redefine. It wasn't, they didn't for toss if we were sleeping with each other, but they quite like an excuse to chuck us off because they viewed us as troublemakers. Um, but it was a ludicrous, ludicrous um, general meeting. And the man in question turned up, bless him, dressed from head to foot in bright red and introduced himself as the Scarlet Woman. And fascinatingly, There were quite a few lesbians, I say quite a few, there were maybe a dozen or a bit more lesbians on switchboard by now. And many of them expressed to me that they were shocked and even horrified and quite thrown by the fact that I had had sex with this guy and was not going to lie about it. But they all stuck by me. Their their attitude was, we are not having the men picking on you for this. You've been a bit of a disgrace, but you're our disgrace. And nobody's, nobody's chucking a lesbian off for this. Um, which was actually really heartening. I mean, a proper sisterhood in action. Some of the calls that we get was from, around HIV and AIDS, was from bisexual women. Because if they're obviously having sex with men and having sex with women, obviously not necessarily at the same time or in tandem or whatever, but they would then be concerned about if they're having sex with a guy. Another guy, the guy might be bisexual too. It's around, could they catch AIDS? Could they become infected? And then you would have to talk through different safe sex practices with them. Because a lot of straight people at that time thought, well, that's the gay plague. That's got nothing to do with us as heterosexuals. We won't catch it. Which we, of course, know is complete rubbish. And we knew then it was complete rubbish. But the newspapers and the media and everything else wouldn't highlight this. So therefore, we had to try and talk bisexual women through this. And of course, the stigma around that time, and to an extent still is, around bisexual women. And it was also the talk of lesbians, oh, I'm not having sex with a bisexual woman because I could catch HIV or AIDS. Or I wouldn't sleep with them anyway because I don't want to go where a dick's been. There was all these kind of issues at that time and a real a hatred, almost, of bisexual women by the lesbian community, which was one of the issues why it was lesbian and gay 
switchboard are not lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender switchboard or LGBTQIA switchboard. It was just lesbian and gay. And there was a huge fight about getting bisexuals into switchboard. But that's perhaps for a, in a few minutes to talk about that. But there were those issues around that. So some women didn't really want to talk to a bisexual woman. They would hand the call off. Obviously, that wouldn't, you just wouldn't go there now. I mean, say if someone, woman said she didn't want to talk to a bisexual woman, she probably wouldn't get on switchboard because that's not where their community's at. But back then, it was completely different. Diana told us about another experience she had at Switchboard, all the way back when she tried to join as a volunteer. I was on a march, the 88 Lesbian Strength March, and I was talking to a Switchboard volunteer, to be honest. And, uh, oh, she was quite attractive. Might have been one of the reasons why I was talking to her. <laughs> uh, so we got chatting and stuff. And, um, and she said, well, why don't you, you know, sounds to me like you'd be ideal. Why don't you phone up and, and become a volunteer? So that's pretty much what I did. I went along to, to my interview at Switchboard. There was like a load of us there, you know, and there's this night really attractive woman sitting opposite me. I keep saying really attractive <laughs> But uh, she was a really nice woman sitting there who did the interview. Because I didn't know any different at the time, because I'm an intersex woman, but at that time, it was there was very little known and I knew very little about it either. So trans was a term that seemed to, to fit from what I was going through. So I mentioned the fact that I was trans, that I'd gone through the whole system and all that sort of stuff that's when she went ah okay and she carried on through the interview and then two weeks later i got a phone call from uh, lisa power who said to me let's meet up and have a chat about you being a volunteer i'm lisa power i'm a dyke who's been around for donkey's years de shipped up to an interview session and at the interview session, she was interviewed by a lesbian and a gay man um, and accepted as a trainee. And subsequently, the lesbian who interviewed her swore that they did not know that she was trans. Now, I find that extremely hard to believe. Um, and unkindly, I think what happened was they went home um, and got a flea in their ear for her being trans. Um, because they subsequently were one of the two women volunteers who felt that she should not be on switchboard, but they were two very influential women volunteers. Um, and, and they did try and have her refuse partway through training, is my recollection. Um, and there were a lot of different um, ideological issues going on at the time. We were having, so we had a row about transgender issues and a row about sexuality definitions all at the same time going on. We could have good tantrums on a good day. Um, but Dee, Dee was a brilliant trainee. Um, she was excellent. Uh, and as she pointed out to some of the younger lesbians on Switchboard, she'd been a lesbian longer than they had. So, uh, you know, there was absolutely no reason why she should not be a volunteer. I mean, I don't think I did anything remarkable other than just wasn't having any nonsense. But I mean, there were lots of the men who weren't having any nonsense either. So we sat there having a chat. Uh, she said to me, look, we really want you to be a volunteer. You're the kind of woman we really want. 
you know, your knowledge and everything else and your personality fits really in well. But you might face some difficulties as a volunteer. You might get some cold shoulder. You might get the odd comment. Although if you're abused in any way, verbally and that sort of thing, come and see me or talk to me about it. So, and I don't know about the time I was feeling particularly brave or anything, but I said, no, I want to be a volunteer. I don't see any reason why I shouldn't be. You know, I'm a dyke. I know what I'm about. And I think I could be useful. So I then went, came in and joined, became a volunteer and did my training, which was tough then. It, it was really tough training. You know, you miss a day, you're out. You know, you have to start again from the beginning. This is a logbook entry from January 16th, 1987. Someone phoned a right nerd who said he is gay and thinks this is immoral, against the church and all wrong and disgusting. He then complained because I wasn't supporting and in agreement with him. Said he's going to make a formal complaint. I wonder who this guy is going to complain to. I have no idea. And so we can see here from this logbook entry that religion is starting to become a theme um, in season two. We always are led by the logbook entries in the logbooks podcast. We didn't really see many callers contact switchboard in season one about religion. I think we were quite surprised in season one, actually, that um, well, by the end of season one, that religion hadn't been raised on the calls very much. And also, I know that um, some listeners of the podcast actually said to us that, oh, you know, you know, why didn't you cover religion? And like you said, it's because we're we're led by the logbook. So it's interesting now to see callers mentioning religion more in this period, the 80s. Yeah, definitely. And and when it is mentioned in the logbooks, it is usually negative. It's usually about Christianity. There are also some mentions from Muslim people and Muslim families um, to do with shame and honour. And we're going to be covering religion more in upcoming episodes. But for now, we're going to be hearing from Rebecca. So growing up as a teenager, so it would have been yeah, from about the age of seven right through to 18. Grew up in a very kind of religious household where, yeah, kind of the routine was church every Sunday and kind of going to youth groups associated with the church in between that and there was no scope at all to discuss sexuality um, in any sense you know I marriage between a man and woman was a given and you know there was that was never kind of engendered with any sexuality in itself I'm Rebecca Swenson I'm 45 live in London and have been a switchboard volunteer since 1998. Yeah, it would come up in church sermons and I remember being in, in church and and uh, the vicar, one of the vicars saying, and it was quite horrible, it was, it was really striking with the venom. He said it that if any of you think you might be gay, you'd better pray to God for forgiveness. And I remember my little sister being there who was would have been about nine under 10 anyway and her saying that's about you because there was no one else everyone else was kind of 60s 70s 80s there was my sister who was yeah little it could only have been about me or there were people there with their husbands wives it was could it only have been about me and 
having that kind of spotlight shone on you was was frightening and it was oppressive and you don't shake off easily that kind of feeling of being bad or feeling different. There were so many clues, really, I guess. I think um, things I would read, for example, books I would get from the library. And I remember my mum belonged to like a Sunday Times book ordering club and I ordered a book from her from her book club and it was, I, th- I can't remember what it was, I think it was um, Mothers and Other Lovers by Joanna Briscoe. <laughs> and actually saying that title out loud for the first time makes me realise why I got into quite so much trouble as I did. And it changed the, um, changed the types of books it then sent to my mum because they would kind of cater for your needs. So there were lots of clues, like books dropping through the letterbox. I remember there were lots of times I was asked, is there anything I want to talk about? Um, but it just wasn't... Yeah, it, I, I didn't have the words for it. I don't think it would have been handled particularly well. I was encouraged to have weekly chats with Bishop's wife. And um, in hindsight, it's very obvious now what those chats were about. But I, I quite enjoyed them. <laughs> yeah, we would chat about everything other than my sexuality, much to her frustration. Yeah. This is a log entry from August 17, 1987. It's a clipping from TNT magazine and it reads, Nun defends condom use. A Catholic nun who defended the use of condoms stood by her comments despite a public reprimand from Melbourne's Catholic Archbishop Frank Little. Sister Mary Lee Moorhead, Victorian Council of Churches General Secretary and a member of Society of the Sacred Heart, was rebuked for her comment after a church's conference on AIDS last week that the use of condoms might be necessary to prevent the spread of AIDS. The Archbishop's spokesman, Father Francis Herman, said in a statement, Sister Mary Lee Moorhead was expected to follow Catholic teaching on sexuality. The volunteer who taped it into the logbook has written, right on, sister. Although I did volunteer at a convent and was bullied by a nun but not anything to do with sexuality she kept telling me that as I couldn't iron shirts I would never get a husband if I couldn't as I couldn't cook pies I would never keep a husband happy (laughs) my name is Catherine I'm 54 I had my teenage years in Lancashire in the early 80s I was about uh 15 I was I was very nerdy I was doing my um queen's guide and there was a community service angle of this so I went and worked in the in the kitchen and she just had me as a little slave really there were some really elderly nuns there and for all I know I mean they could have had celibate connections but there were they were you know nuns that had their sort of special friend in there I was brought up Catholic my dad uh, wasn't religious in any way but my, but my mum had us going to church every Sunday and doing all the sacraments. There was never anything about, you know, relationships or marriage, but there was this big assumption, I think from my mum, the way she was brought up was that you kept yourself till you were married 
and that you know certainly I mean this is even in the 80s that you would be a virgin when you got married or certainly would save yourself for the person that you would end up marrying and I did always just think that I would get married and have kids my parents were from uh, working class backgrounds grammar school kids and very very aspirational so the whole focus on our household was really education Every, the, the pressure more than the moral pressure was to pass exams and get to university I, the, the sort of irritation that either of them had about boyfriends would be that they would be getting in the way or heaven forbid if I was to get pregnant and the world would end and I really thought if I got, got pregnant it would have been just the end of ev everything so the sort of gay side of me was just completely buried and uh, you know it was a fantasy life so that so the so I've got two pamphlets here that I found when I was looking for my diaries. Why I've kept them, I don't know. Probably for historical record rather than guidance. So one's from the Catholic Truth Society of Ireland, and the other is the Catholic Truth Society, but based at Eccleston Square in London. And this, the one in London, cost ten p, and it's called Going Steady. I think probably my mum had them for herself and just gave them to me. So this is someone who was born in the late 1930s, left home in the 50s, and in the 80s was giving this to me. Or it could have been my grandmother, because my grandmother, who I love very much, um, but was incredibly religious, she was always giving me little sacred heart pictures and things to keep me safe. Oh yeah, this is it. it it's all about going steady, boy meets girl, all little sections. And then it says, before marriage, a girl would do well to realise that the handsome curly-haired boy who made her tinkle from head to toe with femininity and feel like a goddess is really a powerhouse of sexual activity who is only stopped from turning his fantasies into reality by respect for her feminine person. Should she cheapen her femininity or allow it to be cheapened and so destroy his respect, she must share the blame for the consequences, which I knew to be pregnancy. It's really interesting for me hearing those memories and those stories, specifically because I was I was brought up Catholic. So I went to Catholic school. I went to Catholic camp. Catholic camp. <laughs> church camp right here. You know, I went to uh, church school every Friday. It's called catechism. It was it was so integral in my life, in my everyday, and in who I was. Isn't catechism a club in Plymouth? <laughs> no. you went to every Friday <laughs> it was, it was at the church up the road <laughs> what does listening to Catherine's stories about her Catholic upbringing and her family uh, make you think about and make you feel today it, it, in, in part it makes me feel a bit sad because it reminds me a lot of my grandmother who died before I had realised I was gay or come out and it, it was sort of after her death that I started to pull away from my religion. She was very, very religious, Irish Catholic background. Yeah, it does make me feel quite sad, um, in part because I I struggled a lot when I came out. She was very close and important to me. And I worried a lot about whether she would accept me. And I remember, and it still does bother me a little bit now, <laughs> although mm. I know that of course she would, because she meant so much to me, but she was of course Catholic as was the majority of my family and my Catholic family do accept me now. But it does remind me about how 
how I how I really started to understand my identity um, as a Catholic person, and that was at school. Um, in a religious studies lesson where I was learning about, you know, a sort of overview of what we were going to do in the term. And they were talking about abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, of course, things that the Catholic Church stands strongly against. And I got really, really upset. And I remember going home crying and and shouting at my mum, saying, how could you have brought me up? In this religion, really, wow! How, how can you? I I stand up and say I'm a proud Catholic, and I've just found out what this means. How did she take that? She took it really well, actually, and I ended up saying I didn't want to be a part of it, and she accepted that, and and I left the church. Mm. Religions are really big um, part of a person's life. If they're raised with that, leaving that behind is not easy. It's always going to be a wrench. Yeah, you know, even if you definitely know for sure that you want to leave that and move on and 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 live in a different way um that's really really difficult yeah it is and i think that there's something really complicated about religion where you know you obviously have the religious faith aspect of it but you have this culture you have this family you have history it's so much more than just a religious practice it's it's so it's it's identity and we know that at the heart of religion of like all religions is the practice of compassion and understanding and loving and caring for each other. You know, whatever is layered on top of that, books versus practices, fabric, candles, all of that, you know, at the, at, at the very base level is, is compassion. And um, obviously religion, I'm sure, has helped like countless LGBTQ plus people. One of my friends, his actual first uh, gay experience was at a Christian camp. They sat around, they sung songs, they did prayers together. And uh, he sort of like looked up to this friend who was like a couple of years older than him as like a bit of like a spiritual leader. And uh, and then um, uh, basically he like fell in love with him <laughs> um, and took it from there. But anyway, I have to ask you, Tash, like what was your experience of Catholic camp? What is that like? Yeah, I mean, I was quite, I was, I was young. I was in primary school when I went um, a couple of years in a row. Um, I have to say, I have nothing but like peaceful, calm memories about it. I, the main thing that I have that sticks in my mind with any sort of irritation was having to do the washing up and being on the washing up rotor. <laughs> um, but, but no, it was a. I remember well, getting cleanliness up. Cleanliness is next to godliness. <laughs> This is logbook entry, 30th October, 1991. Call from a guy whose lover was diagnosed a HIV positive three years ago by his GB. The GB then kicked him off the practice. Today the lover was diagnosed a negative at the STD clinic after three years. They have been advised to sue the GB had told him to go to church and pray. I wrote this because I was stunned. What a world. Volunteer was called Patrick. We were in a relationship, but I never would say, oh, this is my girlfriend. I mean, it was... I mean, in in gay circles, yes, but not in the wider world. To the wider world, we were just very good friends who shared a shared a flat together. One Easter holidays, I went home, um, and um, 
the, the girlfriend, she um, rang me and obviously from the tone of the conversation, my mum was curious and so um, confronted me about it. And I admitted that we were together and she just went absolutely crazy. I mean, she was just shrieking and screaming and then she said she was gonna call, call the GP and I just left I just picked up and left so that was back in Lancashire and I just got the train back to London and I didn't speak to her she, you know she used to ring me regularly or write she used to write to me as well prolifically so she wrote me a letter saying that she'd been in touch with the GP and that the GP was going to find a psychotherapist for me to see this was about 1987, you know, it's not like back in the dark ages. <clears throat> so what the GP was doing, I really don't know. But I ignored it. And I just ignored all contact from her for six months. I don't know what my dad thought was going on. Um, I have my little sister still at home. So, and I really loved her to bit. So it was hard not being in touch with her. And, but I just knew that I had to protect myself. And then one day, totally out of the blue, my mum rang me talking about the weather, talking about what my grandma was up to, like nothing had happened. So I'm going to read the logbook entry from the November 1985 logbook. This is a newspaper article that was pasted into the logbook, titled No Tolerance for Lesbians, which reads... We in Barnet have some gay people in our community. I feel sympathy for them, for nature has dealt them a hard blow, making their row even more difficult to hoe. I have met some gay men who largely seem gentle, educated and civilised. In spite of the unnatural life they lead, I regard them kindly as friends. I find it difficult, however, hard as I try, to reach similar tolerance for the female. I regret I cannot say lady gays. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if it is their obvious lack of attraction, and let alone affection for men that makes them so strident, rude, aggressive, and utterly abusive where no need exists. They make themselves the object of mirth. Even Labour MPs are quoted as saying, we should build a new Jerusalem, not Sodom and Gomorrah, and another Labour delegate has publicly blamed this unnatural act for the spread of the killer disease, AIDS. It gets queerer and queerer when these folk wish to control the normal population, as do their equally strange, but possibly in other ways, comrades in socialism. M. Lester, Member Room, Town Hall, Hendon. Volunteer writes, this letter was in the pro-gay Hendon and Finchley Times on the 24th of October. Please write briefly to the editor. No need to answer the idiot points. Perhaps ask how such an MCP could be elected to a Barnet Council. He is Councillor Malcolm Lester Tory. The more letters, the better. Dudley. It's worth noting that that letter from a councillor in uh, Barnet Council was published in the Hendon and Finchley Times, a local newspaper, attached to know whose constituency was Finchley during this period of the 80s. Uh, tell me, Adam. I think you know. 
um, well, it was uh, it was a it was a constituency of the person who was also the prime minister, Margaret Thatcher. You did know that. I one. did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just think it's worth pointing out that connection. So Malcolm Lester, the uh, the Barnet councillor who wrote that letter, probably knew Margaret Thatcher. And of course, this letter was there is a really, really good example of the kind of negative atmosphere instilling these negative feelings in the press that people are reading, the general population are reading. Um, and of course, as always, people react in a number of different ways. The two main ways that people tend to react in are, you know, getting angry, getting loud, marching down the street, wielding banners, um, and others don't feel able to do that. And they sort of hang back a bit. I remember going to London Pride in the late 80s um, and standing hiding behind a pillar in um, Trafalgar Square and feeling so emotional about seeing all those people, not only that there's so many gay people, but also that they were so strong and courageous to stand up and uh, march. And I just couldn't. I was scared of being seen on the six o'clock news and you know what my wider family would think so although I've never witnessed any real homophobia apart from the odd cat call I mean even in Brighton if I'm holding my wife's hand you know you still get looked at now which I don't like or still being shouted at by drunk people around St James Street but no real physical threat but I've always had this inner homophobia of, you know, not feeling good enough or equal. Well, it was obviously a, a, a deep shame that I wasn't matching up, you know, as, as my, you know, my parents, because of their backgrounds, always seemed fearful of, well, you know, status was always important to them. And, you know, to I mean, to be gay, it clearly wasn't even in my dad's consciousness because he was so shocked in, you know, 2004 or five, whenever it was. We have to come out all the time, you know, whenever I work freelance or whenever I'm in a, a, a new work situation, I have to come out by mentioning my wife. I mean, in the past, I used to just fudge it with partner. I mean, maybe it's the sort of moral, sort of Catholic morality that I was brought up with. But, I, you know, I mean, society doesn't, even now, always value queer people. There's always a feeling of you're, you know, you're still having to sort of fight. Tash, can I tell you a little bit about why Catherine wanted to tell that story when I interviewed her. She was really keen to talk about inner homophobia because she feels that it's had like a really, really big impact on her. Um, you know, it's not just her Catholic upbringing, it's being raised in Britain, um, you know, in an era of hostility towards uh, lesbians like her and uh, that she sort of never really felt confident enough to kind of be political with a big P, um, to fly a banner or anything like that. And she wanted to say that. And I, and as we talked about 
how and why she was going to tell us that story for the podcast, um, she basically said something like, uh, you know, I'm not one of these important people. You know, I'm not one of these people on the march. I'm not this brave, confident, um, like historically significant people. And I was like, hold your horses, Catherine. Like <laughs> you are incredibly significant. Like what you've, you know, what you've done, all of these stories that you've told us about, you know, the way that you spoke to your mom and um, kind of lived your life. Yeah, totally. It's, it's it's interesting that she said that. And that's something that has actually popped up a couple of times with people that we've spoken to mm-hmm. um, throughout this period uh, or have memories of of living and being out during this period or not. And that's that they don't feel that their story is worthy of being told, yeah, which, exactly. you know, for you and me, Adam, thirsty uh, history nerds, it, it, it most certainly is. And I think it, it speaks to something that that we need to address that's wider and that's about redefining what activism is and mm-hmm. what that really means ultimately activism as we understand it in the wider context is protesting it's marching down the street it's throwing things you know it's it's breaking things it's getting arrested but really if you think about what activism actually means it's pushing against the the boundaries of something of society and here these people were definitely pushing against the boundaries of this heteronormative yeah. society and you know they're part of our history and yeah. their their stories are are so fundamental and so important and we're both so happy that we can share them yeah whether you're marching down the street or challenging your mum about why it's okay that you're gay um you know it's all about responding and being active within your context living your life and uh yeah as we've heard from you know Kath- Catherine with her catholic family um etc um or whether you're a a monk in a monastery um so we've got a logbook entry about this uh, yeah this is this is so fantastic um this is a logbook entry from the 23rd of march um 1990 at 4am the volunteer took this call <laughs> um had a brilliant call from a gay monk who was running away from his fascist bishop wonders never cease the volunteer writes i've never heard a man of the cloth used fuck so much in the same breath as our blessed virgin mary <laughs> amen amen <laughs> <laughs> tash true or false do you think this monk was really gay and had a fascist bishop do i believe in the fascist bishop yes. is what you're asking <laughs> i don't i don't know but and it's a monk great who says fuck <laughs> It's great to see someone still holding on to what they believe in um, and standing up for both their religion and sexuality. You know, people who are queer and religious today are still often excluded from both of those communities. You know, and also let's not forget about the biphobia that's still so present in today's LGBTQ plus communities as well as wider Mm. society. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear these stories about biphobia in Switchboard in the 80s especially because you know it seems to us looking back now that binaries were like much more entrenched then you know like the organization was literally called lesbian and gay switchboard and uh, you'd think that as we were moving on and like tearing down uh, certain words and certain ways of thinking about people that you'd think that biphobia would would have would have gone by now i totally totally agree I think it's really important to recognise how much biphobia still exists today. So we spoke to Hafsa, who shares her experience with us. Uh, my name is Hafsa Qureshi. My pronouns are she and her. I'm a bisexual Muslim woman. I'm also disabled, neurodivergent and very vocal about being queer and a person of faith. 
something I've I've noticed sort of anecdotally within outside of LGBTQ plus communities is the perception that bi women especially are promiscuous or that bi women will still want to be with a man or are just pretending to be bi for the sake of attracting men, whereas bi men don't have that representation at all. It was actually recently Vanit, uh, this campaigner um, activist, had a hashtag going around about bi men, bi men exist, bisexual men exist. And it was really powerful to see bi men come forward and talk about their experiences. But they're still often told, well, you're either gay or you're straight. There's no in between. And that rigidity when it comes to bi identities is still prevalent to this day. Myself as a bi person, I, I'm just a nerd. I, I don't drink at all. I play board games till late in the night. You know, I'm a very boring person. <laughs> and that doesn't really align with the stereotype of a bio woman or an LGBTQ plus person. And I think that stereotype does still maintain um, in certain areas and in certain cultures as well. When I sort of came out as openly bi as a South Asian person, as an Indian, within my community, there was a perception of, well, you ruined your life now because you're going to go off the deep end. You're going to start drinking. You're going to take your hijab off. You're going to do X, Y, Z. And nothing had changed about me. I was still the exact same person. But the perception people had of me had immediately shifted. And there was a concept of trying to save me, trying to cure me as well. No idea the extent of something like conversion therapy, but I think a lot of bi people here, well, you just you can just be with a man or you can just be with a woman. I mean, again, negating non-binary people existing, but you know, you can just be with the right quote unquote person and then you don't need to think about it anymore. That in itself is biphobic because it doesn't matter who I'm with, I'm still bi. It doesn't change that. And when we look at language, when we think about someone being bilingual, that doesn't imply that only two languages exist in the world. When we look at language in a reductive way, it really affects how we look at the community as a whole. Uh, And my experience within communities of people who are LGBTQ plus identifying still leads to biphobia. I still have people asking me if I'm an ally. I still have people wondering if I'm still bi, quote unquote. And that's still happening today in 2020. I think when we look at LGBTQ plus identities and sexuality, people think they're incongruous. You can't be one and the other. And I think, again, that stems from the perception that LGBTQ plus people live a certain raucous lifestyle and the perception of religious people being very penitent, sitting in a corner and praying, and that's all their life is. Neither are correct, in my opinion. I think someone can have faith and still be LGBTQ+, because to me, it's as inherent as the colour of my eyes. And to me, my faith is so deeply entrenched in who I am, how I live my life. For me, being a Muslim is what makes me happiest. And what's uh, being bi, identifying as bi, is just part of me. And to ask me to remove one of the one or the other is ridiculous to me. It's like, can you change your eye colour? No, I can't. <laughs> one of the main challenges, actually, for me, being a visible queer Muslim on social media and sort of other media as well, is not just people un- not understanding what my identity is or attacking me for it, because I've kind of reached the point where I don't really care. I am who I say I am. The thing that affects me the most is when I get messages from other queer Muslims, and there are so, so many of us, but they're so afraid of being out, of being open, even on social media, even in an, in an anonymous way. They're so afraid of being out. I'm not trying to reach people who think I don't exist or think I shouldn't exist. I, don't, I couldn't care less about them, to be honest. I want to reach people who are just like me because I know there's so many of us. There are so, so many of us. I want to reach them and just say, 
it's okay. Like you don't have to be out to every single person, but I really hope there is at least one person you can talk to about who you are, whether they know you by a username, a nickname or your real name. We've mentioned the anti-gay law, section 28, a few times already this season. So it's time to dedicate an episode to it. Coming next. Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Tash Walker and Adam Smith in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. If you think other people would like the Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org or join the conversation on social media with the hashtag thelogbooks. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute, the BFI National Archive, the folks at ACAST, MACE, the Media Archive for Central England, Peter Zaccaroli at West Digital, Content is Queen, the staff and volunteers at Switchboard, and all the contributors who shared their stories. Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with your gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.